Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. So if you have signed up for email alerts at canmedevents.com, or if you follow us on social media, then you saw that the CanMed 24 Innovation and Investment Summit will return to the JW Marriott Resort in Marco Island, Florida, May 12th through 15th. CanMed 23 was our first year on Marco Island, and the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. The beach, the food, the amenities, the networking opportunities, and of course, the content presented were all exceptional and CAMED 24 is shaping up to be even better. Registration will be opening up soon and tickets are limited. So if you haven't yet, sign up for email alerts at cammedevents.com so you are among the first to know when tickets go on sale. All right, so this episode, we brought back Dr. Zamir Punja to talk about total yeast and mold. Zamir is a professor of plant biotechnology at Simon Fraser University in Canada. His research interests include the etiology and management of plant diseases on vegetable and horticultural crops, and the application of plant biotechnology for disease management. Since 2018, his work has shifted on researching cannabis, and his group has described a range of previously unreported pathogens affecting the crop and has evaluated various methods for disease management. His team just published the results of a three-year study that identified several factors that have a direct effect on yeast and mold levels. They include factors related to growing, drying, and trimming cannabis specifically. This is important because when growers fail for microbial testing, yeast and mold is often the reason. So if you are a grower that has struggled with total yeast and mold, perhaps these findings in the paper and on this podcast can help you get back on track. I've put a link to the paper in the show description. And if you're watching on YouTube, I've added several figures and images from the paper throughout the conversation. We cover the different species of yeast and mold that are commonly found on cannabis and which are potentially harmful to humans the value of total yeast and mold testing as an indicator of product safety and quality, what is a reasonable threshold for total yeast and mold, how cannabis genotype affects total yeast and mold levels, why leaf litter drives up TYM levels, why hang drying is a better method than wet trimming, the drawbacks of irradiation, and more. Before we get to my conversation with Samir, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Agilent Technologies. Whether you manufacture or test cannabis, you face the challenge of delivering high-quality products, increasing sample volume, and meeting emerging regulations. Agilent offers best-in-class cannabis and hemp analysis solutions featuring robust instruments, software, services, and consumables. Their team of experts can develop, implement, and optimize methods to get you up and running quickly. Learn more at Agilent.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Zamir Punja. 
Good morning, Zamir. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Hi, Ben. Good to see you again. Yeah, I know. We had to get you back in. We had to get you back in quick, too, because I know that you and your team, you recently published um, a great paper um, about total yeast and mold in cannabis. And uh, that's one of our favorite topics here on the podcast and at Medicinal Genomics, as you know. Uh, total yeast and mold seems to be one of those tests that growers really struggle with. And more often than not, if, if a batch is failing for microbial, it's either for total yeast and mold or maybe more specifically aspergillus, which is a fungi and would be kind of included in that category. So always good to, to explore that topic. And I know that your paper it includes some factors that you've identified for causing high TYM levels. So hopefully we can get some good best practices or recommendations for growers that they can enact so that uh, they have fewer failures. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask you why you and your team um, were interested in investigating TYM in cannabis. Right. So, you know, T TYM in cannabis is certainly um, one of the most common things that, that growers will encounter. Um, it's, it's everywhere in the sense that yeast and mold is not specific to cannabis. Um, apples, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, you name it, uh, peanuts, any product that's grown out either in the field or even indoors will always capture a certain proportion of yeast and mold because these, these organisms feed off of plant material. So any exudates, any nutrients, anything coming out of a flower or, or, a, or a potato or a pod will attract some level of yeast and mold. Uh, for the most part, these yeasts and molds aren't necessarily harmful to people. Uh, when you consume an apple that's got some yeast and mold, uh, the tendency is for the body to break it all down and digest it all, and, it, and it's basically gone. Cannabis, of course, because of the various ways it's used, whether it's inhaled or vaped or ex extracted from, uh, yeast and mold apparently has raised greater concern in, in cannabis than it has potentially on other um, food crops. And so, of course, the regulatory agencies have established criteria for um, testing for yeast and mold and, and established levels that will cause a product to fail. So the reason it's hard to manage and the reason we were interested in it is because, you know, it is everywhere. And we wanted to find out, are there certain things that growers may be doing or not doing that may increase or decrease the levels of yeast and mold uh, in their product? So we didn't actually manipulate the yeast and molds that were naturally occurring. But what we did was we tried to understand if you, if you planted a certain genotype, if you had a certain type of air circulation, if you were leaving a lot of leaf litter on the, on the floor, would those things increase or decrease the levels of yeast and mold? And um, up until now, nobody's actually looked at that. You know, we've looked at yeast and mold after a product is harvested. So for example, if you irradiate it, what happens? If you heat it up to a certain temperature, what happens? Um, if you analyze it in a lab using different methods, what happens? We wanted to find out from a grower perspective, what could they be doing um, to try to reduce those those levels in flower? Yeah, excellent. And so what did you find? <laughs> I mean, and more specifically, um, you know, I know that you've identified like certain types of species um, that you found in more abundance than others. I don't know if that might be a good thing to explore. Right. So um, so we, we sort of analyzed all the types of yeast and mold 
you know, we found a total and, and we actually went a step further and, and identified all the different species using molecular methods. And um, penicillium, penicillium was the one that seemed to be the most prevalent on, on cannabis flower. Now, again, penicillium is everywhere. You, you, you can find it indoors. If you've got uh, a home that has, you know, slightly damp conditions, you'll find it in your basement. You'll find it in your rug. Uh, you'll find it sometimes in your clothes. I mean, it's there, you know, and it, and obviously most of us can can deal with it, you know, in our bodies because we're used to it. it we may be inhaling it; it's not so much of an issue. But in cannabis, um, and we don't know enough about penicillium actually. It may or may not be of concern. So that was the first, the most prevalent one we found, and then we found a bunch of others that normally occur in the air, things like Alternaria, and another fungus called Cladosporium, which which is quite common in the air. Aspergillus wasn't that high. You know, the overall levels of aspergillus we found wasn't high. Now, the, this is under greenhouse cultivation, right? So, you know, we don't have a lot of plant material laying around. It. We're not next to a wooded area or a forest where you may have a lot of aspergillus flying in, you know, blowing in through the air. So that wasn't a big concern in terms of the sampling we did in the greenhouse. We found primarily the, the penicilliums and then some alternaria and um Cladosporium species uh, present. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned Aspergillus. Um, and were you looking specifically at the species level too? Like, where is it um, sort of the pathogenic strains of, of Aspergillus, your Flavus fumigatus, Niger terrius? Yeah, so we the primers we used should have been able to, to separate those out because then we also looked at sequences. We didn't find a lot of the fumigatus. We didn't find a lot of the, the pathogenic um, strains. The one we found was a, was called uh, Aspergillus ochracius, mm. uh, ochracius, and it's it's actually a yellow Aspergillus. You know, sometimes you can on a petri dish when you grow these molds like we do for for a long time. One you know one of them is black, another one's green, another one's gray. Uh, ours is yellow, and and it's a species that is not on the current list of regulated Aspergillus species now. That's not to say it's not important. It's just for some reason it's never made it onto that list, and maybe it's not pathogenic, right? It's it hasn't been uh, flagged as being a pathogenic species. But because these aspergillus, they're pretty much everywhere. They're on decaying plant material. They're in the air. It just so happens that in the greenhouse we picked up more of this yellow aspergillus species. The one, the second one we found was aspergillus niger, which is a black aspergillus. And again, that's not one of the, the really um, uh, species of concern. The ones like the fumigatus and the other ones, we didn't see a lot of in, in the greenhouses that we were working with. Yeah. No, Niger actually is on the list for, for many states as one of the, the big four pathogenics. Okay. So, so we did, we found a few of those. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, and of the others that you've mentioned, um, are they known to be pathogenic or even benign to, to people? Like what's, what are we looking at there? So, you know, the, the biggest concern I would say with a lot of these Eastern moles is, is the, the toxins. And when, when I say toxin, I don't mean something really scary. Just they produce these chemical byproducts as they grow. If you, if you grow it up in, in the lab, um, as these cultures grow, as they get a little bit older, they produce these chemical structures that uh, are referred to as mycotoxins. Both penicillium and aspergillus will produce some of these mycotoxins, which again, it's on the radar for testing. 
uh, OTA, for example, ochratoxin is a mycotoxin produced by both uh, Aspergillus and uh, Penicillium species. And it, it can cause some issues if it's ingested at a very high concentration. So for example, you know, Penicillium, you see that on moldy cheese. Cheese mm. that turns blue has Penicillium on it. If you ate a lot of that, you'd probably end up with some issues in your tummy because, you know, there's secondary metabolites or or toxins produced. We don't know how much or if any toxins are produced by the penicillium species in a, in, in cannabis. That's something that perhaps will end up on the radar uh, eventually, uh, how much of these toxins are produced. Fusarium, on the other hand, which is known to infect wheat and barley and other ag uh, agricultural crops, does produce a lot of very dangerous uh, mycotoxins. Uh, one of them is called vomitoxin, which when it's ingested, when the barley or wheat is ingested by, by animals like by cows or cattle, they'll vomit, like they'll throw up because there's so much of it in the grain. We probably, as humans, wouldn't be exposed to as much. Uh, but there are cases where uh, poisoning has occurred uh, by fusarium mycotoxins. But again, we know nothing about what they may be doing or if they're even present in, in cannabis. The whole focus has been primarily on aspergillus, for better or for worse. I mean, that's what the regulatory agencies decided was a priority. Yeah, I mean, and I know that we've uh, we've written about it before. It's been, I mean, it's one of the tests that we that we sell too, of course. Um, but it is one of the few, if not the only, you know, contaminants on cannabis that has been shown to uh, be actually fatal. Um, so maybe for good reason that that we're that we're testing for aspergillus. Yeah, and that's the one that's definitely the most well known. You know, it causes the aspergillosis in in in, in lungs of humans, uh, farmers. It's sometimes referred to as farmers' lung disease because when farmers work with a lot of hay, with a lot of barley, wheat, over years they develop a sensitivity to the aspergillus spores. Uh, and certainly, people that are are immunocompromised or have you know, health conditions, uh, sometimes diabetes, or even have had organ transplants, they will be more susceptible to problems with aspergillus. But for the most part, you know, healthy individuals, and I, I would consider myself healthy, and you look pretty healthy to me, um, I doubt either one of us would suffer from aspergillosis, right. unless we were smoking, you know, 12, 14 joints a day that that had aspergillus in it. On a regular basis, we probably wouldn't suffer from this unless, you know, we, we had some underlying conditions. But as you said, it can cause problems in humans. And so if there's any doubt, any concern, it is flagged. And so aspergillus is flagged. Right. And now when you were talking about, you know, different species and everything, two that kind of stood out to me that maybe you didn't mention or maybe you didn't even find, powdery mildew and botrytis. Um, yeah. Did you, did you find that? So powdery mildew uh, is there, and uh, you know you've seen it on buds. I've seen it on buds. It has a you know white white sort of a moldy appearance, because we were growing these on culture media plates in the lab. That one doesn't actually grow on on the plate, and so um, it it is actually fortunate or unfortunate not on the radar for total yeast and mold testing because you can't you can't test it. You can't grow it. So you may see a mole, a, a bud that's almost white, covered in powdery mildew. It may pass um, because it, it, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't grow. Botrytis was an interesting one. Um, we can't, we don't see a lot of it growing on yeast and mole plates. Uh, 
we know it's there. I mean, you can see Petrata's mold. Sure. But uh, for some reason, it's it's overgrown by some of these other um, other fungi, which in some ways sort of leads to me to question some of these yeast and mold testing assays that are done uh, from a cultural perspective. How do you know when you do a yeast and mold test that you're, you're culturing everything that's important for from a disease perspective? You may be missing, or you meaning the person doing the test, may be missing certain species of fungi. And I think botrytis is one that's being missed. For some reason, it doesn't seem to want to grow as much. Now, does botrytis cause problems in humans? Um, we don't know for sure. It does produce some of these metabolites, these mycotoxins that I referred to earlier. But again, it's not on the radar for for uh, for testing from a regulatory perspective. So it it skips. It it's passed. Um, unless it's super moldy, as you know. I mean, if it's that bad, you don't want to sell that product anyway. <laughs> sort of the the moldy strawberry analogy that we always talk about. You know, if, if you yeah. if you're in the grocery store and you see strawberries that are covered in mold, you're not going to just say, "Well, I guess it passed testing, so I'm going to buy it." You're just you're going to go on to well, a different package. And it's interesting that the biggest mold on strawberry is botrytis. Interesting. Yeah, that's the one that tends to cause strawberries to go bad if you haven't eaten them in a, in a couple of days um, is, is botrytis. So yeah. we've been we've probably been swallowing botrytis spores for, for a very long period of time. <laughs> wow. And that I mean, and maybe that's a good thing to bring up too. In terms of like a total yeast and mold test, is it is it really kind of to protect the consumer from potentially getting sick or is it more of just like a check on just good sanitation or hygienic processes that are going on in the grow? Yeah. So I think it's both. Um, the reason it's, it's flagged from a regulatory or health perspective is because of the fact that there are these reports from the seventies and even eighties of uh, aspergillosis occurring or aspergillus infections, sometimes in patients that have, a, have smoked cannabis. So there's been a, a correlation there. Now, how often is it? I don't know. Is it one in 100,000? Is it one in 10,000? We don't have those numbers to say that out of all the population of cannabis uh, consumers, a certain proportion will get aspergillus infections. But I guess if one person gets it, that's enough to, to raise a flag, a radar. The other yeasts and molds that are in there that, that you, are, you and I are consuming every day in our diet whether it's a strawberry or a, or blueberry or some other fresh fruit, um, our bodies deal with it uh, and break it down, and it's it's not an issue. In cannabis, uh, we really don't know. When we do these yeast and mold tests and somebody comes to me and says, I got 20,000 or I got 40,000, I don't know what that means from a health perspective, and I don't think the health practitioners know what that means either. Uh, certainly, the more it is, you know, the more the chances of getting a problem. But if you told me that 20,000 is twice as bad as 10,000, I wouldn't believe you because there is no data to support that. Now, if it's 100,000, I would say, boy, that's a lot. Like you shouldn't have 100,000 CFUs in a gram. When we put that on a Petri dish, that Petri dish is, is covered. You, you can't see the Petri dish. It's just got so much mold on it. To me, that's not a great product to sell. But if you told me it's 40,000 versus 10, I, I have no idea what that means. Now, in Canada, we've set the limit at 50. And, and so 50 seems to be a doable number. It's a reasonable number in that uh, if you're below 50, 
you're you probably have a product that's that's other than the aspergillus species a product that that's doable in a sense the body can deal with that level of mold um if it's less than that so much the better because it's getting closer and closer to being almost almost clean so different states have set up different numbers i think massachusetts is probably up around 100,000 other others maybe less uh countries like israel uh where if you're using cannabis for medical purposes, it's zero. Like the product has to be essentially irradiated uh, to make sure it's totally clean. So we don't have data on what these numbers actually mean in terms of a health perspective. Yeah, no, and I think that's interesting that in Canada, it's set at 50 because like you mentioned, here in the States, I mean, it ranges. Uh, Iowa, I believe, if, if you look on the map that we have on our website, Iowa has it set at 10. Uh, literally 10 CFU, which seems almost impossible. Um, and then you have Florida and I believe Michigan and maybe Connecticut too. They're up to 100,000 and everywhere in between, but it's all orders of 10. Um, so it's funny that Canada is like, well, 50. <laughs> so that's... Well, we've always been known as a country that sort of tries to balance things out and, and you know make sure that we're, we're approaching things from a reasonable perspective. I have never seen, I have never seen a cannabis flower uh, come in at zero yeah and i've never i would never have seen a flower come in at 10. so that's unreasonable to me uh to to have something that low uh walking down the park to your car you've already inhaled more than 10 colony forming units of mold because of the mold in the trees and in the flowers and everything else around you so they, there has to be a reasonable number that says you know uh, i'm not saying 50 is reasonable but there has to be a number that says, okay, we can deal with that from a grower perspective. You know, when, when we see 50,000 on, on flower, it's usually a product that has been grown under very high humidity or um, it's during the peak of summer where there's a lot of heat or it's a flower that's had some damage done to it because 50 is still a very high number uh, to, to, to meet. In other words, most things should pass 50,000. I've seen maybe two to three percent of product get rejected because it's been over 50,000. Mm. So that that's a good number to say that, okay, you know what? Below 50, things are probably going to be okay. So 10 or 50 or 100 CFUs to me is, is very low. I mean, it's impossible really because everything out there has mold on it. Right. And really, I mean, so I kind of go back to what we were saying before. It's not so much how much mold, although that can be an indicator, but it's what type is on there too, right? Because I mean, yes. so say you you set the limit at, at 50, like you have in Canada. Um, if you had 40,000 CFUs of say aspergillus, that's much more concerning than if you, if it were, you know, one of these other um, non-pathogenic species. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. And so in my in my opinion, there are maybe three um, three groups of fungi that should be tested for. Let's say we decided we don't want to do total CFUs anymore, and we abandoned that approach and said, "All right, we're just going to target certain fungi that we know historically have had an importance for humans uh, and could potentially cause problems if they're present in flower uh, or on product." One would definitely be aspergillus, again, because of the historical significance of aspergillus. I don't think anybody would argue that we, we, we should just exclude it. That would be turning a blind eye to, to reports of aspergillus causing disease. The other is fusarium. We know there's fusarium on cannabis and hemp. 
Uh, we know fusarium causes major problems on cereal and other crops because of the toxins. And then the third is penicillium. Now, penicillium is a tough one because there's so much of it. And not all of it is bad. Like I mentioned the cheese, right? You've got you know penicillin on your cheese. If you eat a little bit of moldy cheese, you're going to be fine. So, But if we are, are going to target three organisms, those would be the three. The rest of it, just ignore it. Like it's, we're seeing those every day in our diets. It hasn't caused a problem everywhere. Um, I can find 30 to 40 different species of yeast and mold on any given cannabis flower out of which maybe two is aspergillus and one might be fusarium. So really, out of that list of 40, I would only be concerned with three, those three. Mm -hmm. I think we should just test for those three and let the others be as they may. Um, because a lot of times growers use beneficial products like trichoderma and, right. and glioclatium and other fungi that are registered. They're allowed to be used on cannabis. They can cause yeast yeast and mold numbers so high that the product fails so you're coming to me now and saying i've treated this product with trichoderma i haven't used any pesticides this product is clean but it's failing because it's got huge numbers of spores of trichoderma which uh, is has been found to be uh, okay for people to to have and so that's a dilemma if we're testing just total yeast and mold. If we're testing for uh, aspergillus, fusarium, penicillium, the trichoderma one's going to pass. Yeah. And now, now I know in the case of aspergillus, probably because I'm more familiar with it, that, you know, it, it likely the regulation wouldn't be just any form of aspergillus because there's all, all sorts of different species. It would be those four pathogenic ones that we had mentioned before. Is it the same case? Um, with penicillium and fusarium that yes. there's you know yes. certain I would, I would say we yes I would I would say there's there's like penicillium citronum is one species that's very very common that produces a number of these mycotoxins and certainly in fusarium there's a couple of three uh, species graminiarum is definitely one of them and uh, pseudograminiarum uh, sporotrochioides I'm just throwing these names out because these are names that we know about Mm -hmm. So yes, for sure, you wouldn't necessarily want to go after every single fusarium that may be there. Right. Um, it would be targeted towards the ones that we know. So really, you're looking at about oh three and three six, maybe eight, eight or nine uh, specific fungi that are known to be harmful to humans that have produced toxins, and we should monitor for those. And um, the others, obviously, and then maybe set a limit of let's say 50,000 total CFUs, if, if we were going to use that. Yeah. Um, and anything below that, don't worry about it. But then uh, test for these seven or eight, like we do salmonella and E. coli and so on. We don't test for every bacterium that's present. Well, we test <laughs> in well, some states okay. they do. <laughs> in some states they do, that's right. They have the total bacterial loads as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But luckily, like you said, those thresholds are usually set pretty high. And that isn't one that uh, growers seem to struggle with, but total yeast and mold is. And we did say that we were going to talk about some of the factors that your your team identified. So let's get into that. And I think one of the major ones um, that you identified that was in this paper was that the plant genetics themselves uh, play a huge role in the TYM levels. Um, I wonder if you could speak a bit to that. And is it specifically like the physical structure of the plant in the in the flowers that leads to that or is there something else going on like does it have something to do with immunity 
Yeah, yeah. So that that was a bit of a surprise to us as well. And I, I'm sort of glad we really included like seven or eight different types of genetics or, or genotypes right. in the study. Um, obviously, we were grabbing whatever whatever we could, whatever was being grown at the time. So it wasn't a planned experiment. But we did find definite differences between the, the types of, of, of cannabis that were being grown. Primarily, it's to do with the morphology and the size of the flower structure. So the larger the, the flowers, you know, the, the bigger the, the, the mass, if you wish, or volume, the higher the yeast and mold in general. Plants that produce very small buds, smaller buds, many of them, but smaller in size, not as dense seem to have less of a, of a yeast and mold. So there was definitely this physical um, correlation. In some cases, I do think there were chemical products, chemicals produced in the flower that would be would be inhibiting yeast and mold. Now, I, I say that because uh, some, some of these flowers were, the yeast and mold was so low that it was almost impossible to explain just from the fact that the flowers were small. I, I think they were secreting some kind of a chemical product, a natural chemical product that was was preventing these eastern molds from growing. If we knew what those were, boy, uh, <laughs> right. we'd, be, we'd be off to a really good start from a research perspective. I mean, definitely that's something that needs to be looked at. I don't think it's something like terpenes or, or uh, some of these other volatiles that we know. It's definitely not THC or CBD because all of these were producing THC, CBD. It's something else that, that perhaps uh, isn't on the radar yet something that uh, other researchers or breeders may want to look at. But certainly flower structure, flower size. And the reason the, the larger flowers seem to have more yeast and mold is the humidity, the moisture in those flowers is higher by 3 to 4% in, in terms of relative humidity than the outside air. And their temperature builds up in the flower. It's almost a mini, it's a mini greenhouse sitting on a, on a flower, on a, on a plant because it traps the solar radiation and it warms up. The buds warm up two, three degrees higher than the environment. So that humidity and moisture, the temperature creates this little greenhouse that allows these yeasts and molds to build up. So one thing we asked ourselves, well, if you, if you circulate the air, you know, you turn a fan on close to the plants and let this air infiltrate through the flowers, what would happen? And boy, the yeast and molds dropped by 90%. Oh, wow. Now, you can't go out and put a fan next to every plant, but certainly you increase your, your airflow, your air movement, the humidity drops, the temperature drops, and your flowers have way less yeast and mold. And it's not impractical. In some greenhouses, you can set up eight or 10 fans blowing in, in a certain direction, and that will really reduce the yeast and mold. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I, and I imagine growers too, would be encouraged to, to hear you say that there could be something more than just the morphology of the buds that that's contributing to it. Um, because I mean, cause if you think about it, growers want big, dense flowers and to, and to have that be associated with higher TYM, well, that's, that's not good yeah. news at all. No. No, certainly. And, and so if the chemicals are discovered, which they will be eventually, um, that will be very, very useful because that's a natural way for the plant to, you know, to protect itself. Now, plants don't have a, a, an immune system, but they do secrete many, many chemicals. Mm. And many of these chemicals are known to inhibit the growth of mold and, and bacteria and so on. 
And so finding that um, strain or strains would be very useful. Yeah. Or even, you know, putting that into a spray of some kind or. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, one th other thing that I saw in the paper, too, is that, you know, in addition to the density and the size of the buds, it was the number of leaves in the actual flower, too, contributed to that as well. Correct. Yeah. So so this is the first time I've actually taken an entire flower apart using a pair of uh, forceps and scalpels, sort of like a surgeon would. You know, I, I took the flower and cut it up into its various components. And all growers will know that we've got these bracts, which are the sort of the inflorescence leaves that surround the the center of that of that female flower. And really, the more the more inflorescence leaves you have, generally speaking, the higher your THC and CBD, because the trichomes are found in these little bracts uh, surrounding the the um, pistils. So I went through and and literally cut them all out and started counting them. And the larger buds had more of these inflorescence leaves or bracts again. It, because it, it provides protection against the flower and it increases the humidity in there. So like you said, the bigger flowers, more, more total THC, more CBD, but also more of these inflorescence leaves um, are building up in there. So visualize a, a flower structure that's more open, where air can sort of filter through. It's got fewer leaves on the outside. Lower yield, definitely lower yield, but less THC, uh, less um, yeast and mold. So it's sort of a trade-off. Right. Uh, you don't want two small flowers. You got no yeast and mold, but then you've got no THC or CBD, so to speak. Yeah. Um, somewhere there's a happy medium. Yeah. So I mean, I guess in terms of so for giving practical advice to growers who are trying to lower their TYM, um, in terms of plant genetics, what should they be thinking? Should they be trying to select strains that you know have certain morphology that are going to be more favorable for lower levels? Should they be increasing their airflow? What do you kind of advise? Yeah, so I think the breeding part is still a ways off. I mean, I, I, I'm sure there are growers that have made correlations with certain strains are known to have higher yeast and mold. Um, a lot of the strains, incidentally, that have high yeast and mold are also very sensitive to botrytis. Hmm. So growers know which strains they grow that have more botrytis bud rot. They can stay away from those because those are the ones that are also going to build up high yeast and mold. Go with your botrytis tolerant strains. They would have a tendency to have lower uh, yeast and mold because the flower structure is much smaller, more, less dense. Uh, obviously, keep the airflow happening. Uh, lower, lower humidity is always good for, for both botrytis and uh, yeast and mold. Don't leave a lot of leaf litter uh, on the floor. Right. Where the tendency is to just cut leaves and drop them. When the leaves get dried out, there's a ton of yeast and mold that naturally start to grow on that. And anything that disturbs that leaf leaf litter on the on the bottom will create some of these spores, uh, you know, flying up to the top of the, the flower. Now, you know, flowers are sticky, right? They're producing resin. And we've shown that if you have a lot of yeast and mold in the air, they'll actually land on the flower and stick. They'll stick onto that resin. And they're they're not killed, they're not inactivated. So those flowers, when they're taken to the lab and tested for yeast and mold, may actually have higher levels because of the fact that spores in the air were were sticking to the the surface of that resin. So that's something else to obviously be aware of during harvest. Don't create a lot of activity around the plants in terms of too much shaking or too much jiggling, uh, because that'll just create a, a spore dust, if you wish that that will land uh, and stick to the, um, to the flowers. Uh, yeah, that's a good, yeah. sure. Sorry, go ahead. 
So as far as spray, sometimes people say, well, can I spray Zerotol or can I spray some chem some product that's registered? I don't think it's a good idea because you, you're increasing the humidity, uh, moisture level in that flower, particularly when it's closer to harvest. Um, so really there's not much you can do from a treatment perspective to bring those uh, levels down. No, and I, and I understand too that... A a lot of it isn't so much what happens during the growing of the plant, but it's in the post-harvest activities, uh, the drying, the curing, and the trimming. Um, I wonder if you could speak a bit about what you found around that sort of uh, activity. Yeah, yeah. So that that's a, that's another aspect that's super important. So let's leave the grower aside. You know, you've you've picked up a whole batch of harvested flower, and now you're deciding how am I going to trim this? Do I want to do you know the standard wet trim? Where you push all the flowers through into uh, into a trimmer, and then uh, dry the individual the buds, or do you want to hang dry, where everything is left intact, and then you know the moisture is taken out, and then you can trim off your your leaves. We found a pretty uh, big difference between um, hang dry and uh, and wet trim. The wet trim creates some damage, obviously, to the, to the leaves and releases chemicals or or nutrients that a lot of moles that might be present, particularly penicillium, start to feed on it and grow. So even during the drying process, you're seeing buildup of these moles in a flower that's been trimmed wet. On the other hand, when you dry this thing first, uh, you're not allowing these, these wound sites or broken off leaves as a source for mold and yeast to get in. The entire flower structure is dried. You've, you've eliminated 90% of your yeast and mold and then when you start trimming it as a, as a dry trim, we found that the yeast and mold levels were way lower. So that's one thing that definitely will, will make a difference. Um, a lot of growers are using the hang dry system. They'll probably find they don't have as, as much issues with yeast and mold. Um, we didn't look at anything beyond that. In other words, you know, the, the curing process or mm. the packaging and storing process. I think all growers know that when you store inappropriate humidity or temperatures, you're going to get buildup of yeast and mold. And they know that if you cure them too long or under high moisture, you're going to get yeast and mold. So we didn't really look at that aspect. We, we kind of stopped right at the point where the flowers had been trimmed, whether it's wet or dry, and then uh, collected data from that. No, that's interesting. So do you have any idea, like in terms of percentage, what growers are typically doing? Is it more common for them to be doing wet trimming versus dry? They're shifting a lot towards dry trim because it, it's yeah. less work in a sense. You know, they can bring the flowers into the dry rooms, hang them, and then and then deal with them later. The drying process itself is very detrimental to yeast and mold, which is obviously a good thing. You know, when you have dry herbs and, and dry products, dried figs and they tend to last a lot longer because the moisture is taken out of them. Mm. Uh, similarly with dried flour, the problem is that you never get down to zero. I've never seen a dried flour get down to zero mold, yeast and mold. There's always a fraction that still hangs around. Mm. And that, that population can always build up later on if, if the storage conditions aren't right. But if you're coming in with a very high yeast and mold load, then nothing you do after harvest is going to bring all of it down to zero. So there's two two components. Try to reduce the yeast and mold while you're growing. And then after you harvest and bring it in, try to do things that will reduce the yeast and mold even further uh, in that in that product uh, that you're handling. Yeah, and I have to imagine that leaf litter too would be um, a big consideration during the trimming process. 
Yes. Yeah, and even having too many leaves on there uh, can create problems for not enough moisture drying and so on. So hang drying has to be done carefully because that you've got way more plant material and you want to make sure that all of it gets down to, I don't know, 12 to 14 percent uh, moisture so that you're not leaving remnants of yeast and mold, uh, even in the hang dry uh, samples. Um, I would say be... over over the year of study, like we looked at maybe, I don't know, two to 3,000 samples. If everything is done right, samples are, are not too much yeast and mold in the beginning. Um, they're hang dried and carefully handled. In the entire batch of 2,000 samples, I would say the average yeast and mold uh, was around 2,000. So 2,000 would be sort of the average that you would expect if everything was done right, you know, you brought things in properly, they were hang dried and trimmed and so on and so forth. 2,000 is doable in most states and definitely doable yeah. in most most countries, but never will it ever go down to zero. Yeah, no, and I was going to ask you too about the, you were mentioning the hang drying and there being kind of leaves and kind of creating the maybe the moisture environment that's similar to what you were talking about during growing. So with that in mind, important to have good air circulation when you're doing the hang drying as well? Totally, totally. And in fact, we actually see an explosion of yeast and mold uh, when the plants first enter the dry room, the drying room because there's so much on there that mm. it, they just start moving around. So you're right. Get the airflow happening. Make sure it's a, it's a long process, seven days, five to seven days. Um, get the moisture out. Measure the moisture in there to make sure it's low enough before we take it out and start uh, trimming it for, for final product. There are pockets of yeast and mold in there. I have seen in some in some of the uh, flowers, for some reason, there's little pockets where you're looking at 10, 15,000 CFUs per gram. But if it's dried properly, uh, it, it should go down to between two to five. I would yeah. say is, is a good number that anybody would be happy with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as you said, you're never going to get down to zero unless you maybe do some irradiation. Um, I don't know what kind of experience you have with that, or if you have thoughts on that. I know it's sort of a, a touchy subject in in the yeah. Industry. So 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 that's allowed in Canada. We we're allowed to irradiate with uh, e beam radiation. Um, I have looked at samples before and after from the perspective of yeast and mold. Uh, it's pretty much zero uh, after it's been irradiated. What does it do to the final product? Um, people that have used it would say that it doesn't really alter too much of the, the cannabinoid profiles. It, it may perhaps impact some of the terpenes, but overall they, they, they're finding not a significant difference between irradiated and not from, a, from an organoleptic perspective. The problem is the cost. It's really expensive to go through and treat all the product unless you absolutely have to. For example, if you're exporting and it's a requirement for zero zero mold that you you would have to do that, but it's it's expensive. Um, there's there's other ways, and I think the the article we published was trying to address what are these other ways that could minimize your yeast and mold levels without having to resort to things like uh, irradiation uh, afterwards. Yeah, and which I know there's different types of irradiation. Which which ones were you looking at? Is it ozone so we, or? No, we, we looked at uh, electron beam radiation, E-beam radiation. I haven't looked at ozone. People have talked about ozone. There's also plasma, cold mm -hmm. plasma treatments. 
um, the Israelis, the Israeli researchers have done uh, good good studies on that. They've published a couple of papers on different forms of radiation that that are effective, and most of them do very similar results to to e-beam radiation that we've looked at. But there is a cost factor, and there's there's also the handling factor, right? You gotta then take your products, move them over to the site that's being uh, treated, and then bring them back for for packaging and so on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, but it does seem like there's hope here that you know if if best practices are followed, then you should be able to hopefully get underneath the the threshold as, as long as your state has set a, a realistic one. I think so. Now we haven't talked about outside grown uh, field. Oh, grown. Yeah, that, that's sure. that's another story altogether, because you have so little control over the weather. If you get rained on, if it's a, a you know series of hot hundred degree weather with high humidity. Uh, it's almost impossible to manage yeast and mold. Uh, that's really unfortunate. And I don't have any suggestions or recommendations there because I haven't worked with outdoor grown cannabis uh, in terms of yeast and mold. Uh, it would be definitely more challenging um, to, to manage those, those plants. Yeah, I can tell you as someone who has grown in the Northeast um, and had plants that finish in October, it can be very tough to, to manage mold. Yeah. And, and, you know, something just occurred to me. Maybe there should be criteria for um, regulations indoor cannabis versus outdoor, where there's, there's more leniency on the on the indoor because you know that the, the, the eastern mold pressure overall is going to be lower indoors if everything's done the way it should be. Outdoors, maybe that's a different scenario. So I don't know if, if the regulatory agencies consider method of production or not. Um, there could be some way to discriminate uh, indoor or differentiate, I should say, differentiate indoor grown versus outdoors in terms of potentially having lower um, CFUs. Yeah, no, that's a great point. All right, Samir, uh, do you want to be very mindful of your time? And um, I already know that I'm going to be putting a link to the paper in the show description for people to check out because there's a ton more information in there that we didn't get a chance to get to. Um, but in addition to that, if you have any other resources or um, or research that you'd like to share with the folks and that I can put links to, uh, please let me know. And then of course, um, any ways that people can maybe get in touch with you or follow the work that you're doing, please plug away. Sure, I, I appreciate that. And again, it's an exciting field to be in because there's there's so much to learn. And um, the idea of exchanging information to me is is very important. Uh, the, the fact that we're talking today is because I want the information to get out there. I want it to be used. Uh, you you guys have a good way of disseminating it. And the more we share, the more we know, the more we understand, and the more we can manage these these problems. These problems are not new. They've mm -hmm. been around for centuries uh, since the day cannabis was first grown. I suspect the yeast and malt tolerance was much higher back then um, than it is now. But we need to we need to know, we need to study, and we need to share. Absolutely. No, and we appreciate you coming on again, Zamir. And I'm sure, I'm sure you'll be back. <laughs> you'll be back again. And uh, if we don't see you before CanMed, I can't wait to see you down in Marco Island. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Ben. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Punja. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Agilent Technologies.
In the meantime, please like, comment, and subscribe on whichever platform you use to listen to us. Also, please check out cammedevents.com to sign up for email alerts and learn all about our annual Innovation and Investment Summit. You can also view videos of all the past CanMed presentations in the CanMed archive at canmedevents.com. I invite you to join our CanMed community group on Facebook to interact with other cannabis professionals. And please do follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Just search for CanMed Events. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to join us for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.